Nothing but grace, my only plea. All I am depends on your love and your mercy. Your cross, my shield, my faith, your blood. I will not be moved by the hurricane or flood. And I will stand with you on higher ground. On Christ the solid rock I will be found. And for eternity sing out my soul. Everybody take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 5. What I wanted to share today was God's grace. You know, in the past, for many of us, we've heard the term grace used in completely incorrect ways. The main one being that grace is basically God giving us a pass on sin, and that is just not how it works at all. I've brought this up several times in this fellowship with Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the uh, German pastor said about cheap grace. The thing that we have to keep in mind is that the grace that we have was bought with a price, and it was a price of Jesus Christ's life and should never be treated cheaply. That grace was required God's only begotten son to pay the price for that. So we should be honored and privileged to walk in grace. But anyway, so we talk about grace, and grace is certainly, I mean, the definition fits. I really can't do any better than the one we've heard. It's unmerited divine favor, that God blesses us even though we have done nothing to warrant it. Me personally, you know, throughout my walk, I've been in just states of absolute darkness and absolute sinfulness, and God's light shines through. And that's grace. I didn't have to climb up to God. You know that verse I read a couple of weeks ago, if I make my bed in heaven, behold, thou art there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And that was Old Testament. That was Old Testament. Isn't that something? Think of how much more it is now. Another thing that Diedrich Bonhoeffer said was that, you know, grace and mercy are for those who are out there on the front lines, you know, living it for God and Christ because those are the people who are going to make the most mistakes. If you never try, you never make a mistake. And so that's who God intends grace and mercy for. It's the disciple who gets out there and periodically fails over and over again in trying to walk this thing out. But God's grace abounds. It's just amazing. So I wanted to go through Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 today with the theme of grace. And just see, you know, this is really, in these two chapters, grace is really presented to the believer in a prominent position in this section. If you are a student of the book of Romans, you'll see that up to this point, you know, we have been dealing with some of the problems that humanity faces, you know, the sin problem, the idolatry problem. How does man deal with it? You know, mankind was given the law and failed miserably because the law was unable to redeem him. And then God gave his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was the perfect savior who redeems us. And then we talk about briefly about faith. And faith is how this grace is acquired, that we have grace by faith. And so this is where we pick it up in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So there it is there. We have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So first question, what does justification mean? Justification, uh, how does it relate to righteousness? You see those two words used quite a bit, justification and righteousness. So how do the two words relate to one another? Justification is the action by which righteousness is the result. Does that make sense? Justifying is the verb in the sentence, right? It's the doing word, right? You were justified, therefore you are righteous. See how that works? So justification and righteousness. So then, and you see how these two words are interconnected, right? Justification, righteousness, uh, they can oftentimes be used interchangeably, right? So then what does righteousness mean? Definition I like is righteousness connotes right standing with God, a right standing with God. Because I have been justified, I am now righteous. I have a right standing with God. Why do I need justification? What keeps mankind from having a right standing with God? Well, it's implicit in the the Bible. I mean, throughout this whole notion of justification is that we were being justified from something. And the answer to that is sin, right? Sin, sin. Implicit, like I said, within this need of justification is a need for redemption from sin, So having been justified, we are now made right with God, okay? And having been made right with God, we now have peace with God. Do you see how these are all linked together in this chapter? So we have been justified, we have been made righteous, now we have peace. And then so the next question is, well, why do we need peace with God? Isn't God a peaceful God? We were at odds with God, and we were at odds with God because of the enmity that came through Adam, right? Okay, that's exactly right. We were at enmity. Now, I've gotten throughout the years raised eyebrows when I talk about the hostility that exists between man and God, and people are like, huh? Hostility? Well, that's what the Bible teaches, that mankind is born into this world with a natural hostility and enmity towards God, that there is a state of war that exists between the two of them. So mankind is at odds with God. God, in turn, is angry with mankind. That's the state of humanity, okay? We aren't born into this world with this peaceful, loving relationship with the Father. The word I think of is the word estranged. You know, you have a husband and wife, and they are estranged from one another, or a father and a son, which is probably more appropriate here, is you have a father who is estranged from his son, and his son is estranged from his father, and they are not on talking terms, <laughs> right? And that's the state of mankind. It's a an estranged relationship. But when a person is justified and is made right with God, that person has now gained God's acceptance. You think of the prodigal son, right? I mean, was there any problem with God's heart towards that, or the father's heart towards that son? No. Remember the son, you know, came up and the father starts running and he gets to him and the son's got a mouthful of excuses and the father's like, I don't care about all that. You know, welcome home. And that's God's heart for us. That's God's heart for mankind. 
Another thing that we should consider, it says, therefore, being justified. Okay, I didn't justify myself, did I? No, it was done for me. It was done for me. I am the recipient of this justification. Okay, and this is really important to understand because that's grace. That's what grace is. I am a recipient. I didn't work for it. It was done for me or given to me. Okay, and and this is so important because we all like to work for stuff that's given to us for free for some odd reason. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. So this is grace. God redeemed us from sin by another. And this is Jesus Christ. We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Look in verse 3. It says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. You know, it's interesting. We live in a society that's relatively peaceful towards its Christian population. So for us, we're like, you know, we don't understand that... There is this expectation throughout the Bible that as soon as you take on the mantle of Christianity, you immediately become a target, right? That you are persecuted. This is the idea. In the biblical days, that's certainly how it happened. A person would become saved and immediately would start to become persecuted. I mean, that was part of salvation, right? Like speaking in tongues, you got persecuted, Um And that's how it was in the biblical days. That's how it is in certain countries in this world, isn't it? The Sudan, Nigeria, you know, some of these countries in Africa that are predominantly Muslim. As soon as people find out that a person has converted to Christianity, that's when life takes on this whole new dimension. So right here, it says not only are we blessed with justification, but it says that we rejoice in our sufferings because they're soon to follow, right? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character and hope. And you're you're like, okay, God, you know, a little less character. Right. I could do with a little less character here. But this isn't just, you know, you know, telling your kid, you know, it'll give you character. This is godly character. This is a character that allows you to understand and know God in a deeper, more profound way. Does that make sense? It's a godly character, that you start taking on God's character. You know, um, Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews, learned obedience by that which he suffered. How about that? And then it goes on to say, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. And I, I've thought about that so far. We're, we're talking about, you know, this relationship between man and God. God justifies man, man gets justified. And then God pours out his love into the heart of this newly justified person. And that person, you know, is supposed to run out and love everybody. Well, that's not what it's talking about. Who is that love for? For God, right? What's the first and great commandment? That you would love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when you get justified, you now have access by grace to God to love him more. To love him more. I mean, to love him as opposed to being hostile to him, right? That you can truly fulfill this first commandment because you're not in this state of war with God any longer. That you can love him, that you have the ability to be intimate with God. There's a lot of people who sign up for Christianity because they like the religious program. 
They like to be told what to do. They like to go through all the motions. I was raised Roman Catholic. We never talked about God, ever. We talked about the church. Well, what's the church? It's a bunch of men, right? I mean, in that context. We didn't talk about loving God. And that's what happens when you get focused on the horizontal ministry and you forget about the vertical relationship. The truth is that everything flows from God out, right? And it's got to be that way. Otherwise, it's just a false ministry that the growth comes down from Christ and from God and is manifested this way. So the thing that we want to take care to do is to keep that relationship sweet, okay? And then we have what it takes to bless the household. So it's all about relationship. God's desire is to have relationship with you and me, okay? Look in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, demonstrates his love for us. So, you know, that's always a question in my mind. You know, what's your commitment to me? You know, before I start committing to you, I want to know what your commitment is to me. Well, God tells us he demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, while we were completely undeserving, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. That's grace. Do you see that? We, uh, our efforts, our merit factor zero in that whole relationship. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? It always amazes me how Christians put us right smack in the middle of our of the wrath, when here and in Thessalonians, it says very clearly, God saved us from the wrath. So why would God save save us from the wrath and then throw his church right in the middle of it? It just doesn't make too much sense. Uh, verse 10, for if when we were God's enemies, there it is. So when we talk about the hostility, if anybody ever asks you for a verse, there it is right there. We were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. So when you look Outside the church at the world, the natural world, the people of the natural world are enemies of God, right? I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. Until you're saved, you are an enemy of God. Now, it isn't because God hates your guts, because remember what John 3.16 said, God so what? Loved, right? So that's not the case. The case is just fallen man that you have fallen. And we'll talk about that as we go through here. For when you were, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, brought together with him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And I thought about this. When we were at our absolute worst, God's love shined through and he saved us in Christ. That's beautiful. Not only this, not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ whom or through whom we have received reconciliation. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came on all men or to all men because all have sinned. And then it begins a parenthesis here. So, you know, put a little thing in your mind. This parenthesis goes from verse 13 through verse 17, right? So look at verse 13. We'll start going through the parentheses. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin cannot uh, is not taken into account when there is no law. Okay, 
So in other words, law, the law defined what sin was, right? There was a state of unrighteousness, uh, lack of justification, but sin is defined by the law. So when the law is there, it defines what sin is. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. What does that mean? Why Moses? That's when the law came. Exactly. That's exactly right. So death reigned from Adam to Moses, even during this period of time where there was no law, death reigned, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Big verse there. Okay, a pattern of the one to come. This is an important point. Adam and Jesus are related to one another scripturally through what we call type and anti-type, right? You know, you, you have a pattern. It's a figure of speech. So Adam is a forerunner of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ, that they are related to one another. Okay. So we have here in Scripture this story of two men. And if you think about it, this story of two men defines the whole Bible. And not only does it define the whole Bible, but it defines me. Right. I'm a story of two men. That's John Lynn. He always says that. And I said, that's exactly right, that I am a story of two men. Right. I'm a story of Adam. That's how I was born of the flesh. Right. I have this propensity towards sin. I, you know, I have this hostility towards God. Right. This Adamic nature, this old man, we call it in Ephesians. And I have the new nature, which is Christ. Right. So I am a story of two men. The rest of the world is a story of one man, Adam, right? We are stories of two men, okay? And I, I love that. So these two men define the entirety of the biblical story. Just as Adam was born sinless, so was Christ. They were both born sinless. But it's what they did afterwards that defined their parts in this drama. And just as by one man sin tainted all of mankind and rendered them unrighteous before God, it would require the obedience of the other to redeem mankind. Okay, and it is this dualism that we're going to read about here. Uh, One thing to keep in mind is it's a comparison between two men, not a man and a God man. Okay, it's two men. And that's important because for this type, anti-type to work, there's got to be this this idea, these two men. And I'll, I'll show you a little more about that in a little bit. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Again, the gift of God. Interesting uh, point here is that in the Greek, the word for grace is charis, and the word for gift is charis. Uh, It's a derivative, but same word, same root. That grace is a gift, all right? It's something that we are receivers of. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, right? So, and that's the end of the parentheses. 
That's quite a parenthesis. So you have this story of two men that sin came into the world and death by sin. And so death came upon all men for all have sinned, right? So am I guilty of Adam's sin? Well, in the sense, yes, of that mankind, since he was a first parent, we have been thrown into a world that sin is a part of, right? So is death. And it falls on all of us. If you're a human being, unless Jesus Christ comes back, you're dying. You're going to die. That's uh, from Adam. But life comes through Christ. Look in verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many were made righteous. Isn't that great? So the story of two men, like I said, they both had to be men. Hold your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. You know, I, you think about it, you know, how many times have I read these chapters? A lot. But think about how profound this whole discussion is, you know, by one man death, by another man life. You know, I mean, it's a really, uh, not a heady, but it's just an intriguing idea that this story defines the Bible and it defines each one of us personally, right? First uh, Corinthians 15, look at verse 21. It says, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. That's awesome. That's awesome. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Look in verse 16. It says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. What does that mean? It means humanity, mankind, right? Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be or had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. See that? And that's the whole thing, that, you know, we have justification of life for our sins, our former sins, right? So I got saved, all my former sins are wiped clean. But, the, you know, we used to ask ourselves, well, what is Jesus doing now in the old ministry? Well, he's the mediator between God and man, right? He's the high priest, so he's the one who still goes to bat for us now. So we got the former sins taken care of. But, you know, when I got saved, I didn't stop sinning, as my wife will attest to. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, is that Jesus now is the mediator between God and man, right? That he continues to intercede for us. And that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, Jesus is the atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews chapter 4. I always thought that was kind of a cool idea that here's Jesus, that he is not only the high priest, but he's the sacrifice too that the high priest makes. You know, that's, that's kind of cool. Hebrews chapter 4, and look at verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Important key, wouldn't you say? Right? Holding firmly. Satan would like to get you off the ball, wouldn't he? 
right? He wants to get you back to trying to justify yourself, right? And it, it just doesn't work that way. Verse 15, for we do not uh, have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now, how about that? So Jesus was made like us in every way, and then he was tempted in every way, like we are, with the one big distinction, he didn't sin. Now, you look at that with the difference between the one man and the other man, this tale of two, two men. The one man, when tempted, sinned, but Jesus did not. And that's why he is the perfect sacrifice, and that's why we're justified. Isn't that cool? It says, uh, verse 16, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I love that. I love that. Because, you know, a lot of times, you know, one of the side effects of sin is the sense of unworthiness, right? That I just don't feel worthy of God's grace. And God's saying, that's when I need grace the most. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking the other day, you know, there are religions that are Christians that teach, well, you know, as long as you don't sin intentionally, you know, if you if you sin by accident, it's okay. You can get good forgiveness for that. But if you intentionally sin, you know, no soup for you. Oh, my goodness. And I was thinking, well, a person who would make such a moronic statement is a person who doesn't understand addiction, right? Think of an addict. An addict is one minute, I'll never do that again. And it's the next minute imbibing. Isn't that something? And that defines the addict. You know, you... You know, you think about uh, Romans chapter 7, where it says, that which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not do, that I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. So to sit there and say that God is good about forgiving unintentional sins, but you better not mean it. Oh my gosh, they have no idea what they're saying. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Amen. That's a biggie. To, that doesn't give me a, a license to go out and sin at will. And, and that's where the, I think the disconnect for folks who think this way, that somehow grace is a license to sin. No, grace is the ability to get fully redeemed from my sin, even addicted sin. I mean, you think about it, what we're going to read in a little bit, you know, all sin is addictive in, in a sense. Look in Romans, verse 20 of chapter 5. I, I didn't read that. So chapter five, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, meaning called out. So the law was added to call out the trespass. But where sin increased or was called out, grace increased all the more. Isn't that something? That's what Jesus did. So when you talk to somebody and, and they say, well, what did Jesus do for you? There it is. I got increased grace from God. It says um, increase the more so that. Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Isn't that great? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what it's all about. Our God is a God of life. Satan is the author of death. So we see this doctrine of two men. By one, sin and death. By the other, redemption and life. And it's just awesome. And that's what we have to offer this world. You know, I, I looked at this whole pandemic that we just got fi finished going through. Um, can, compared to some of the pandemics that this world has gone through, eh, not, not the worst. However, 
you know, 3 million people lost or coming up on 3 million people have lost their lives. So, you know, not something you want to trivialize. But the hold that it had over people's lives was amazing. It was breathtaking. Why? Because they were afraid of dying. The fear of death. People were confronted with the fear of death. And we live in, like I said, a cushy society. We aren't confronted with that fear too often. And all of a sudden, it's face to face. And, you know, it it had its impact. I think, um, you know, you think about how susceptible, more susceptible you are to sickness when you are fearful, you know, and that's part of Satan's plan, right? He rules through this fear of death. He rules. Chapter six, verse one. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? You know, I was thinking how this related back earlier. When we were at our worst, God would have his greatest, right? And that's what this means here. Do we continue to sin? You know, if God's at his best when I'm at my worst, let's let's let her rip, right? <laughs> and and he says, is that what he's saying? Do we go on sinning that grace may abound? No, by no means. Not at all. It says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, this is more than just an obligation. You know, I'm really thankful for what you did, so I'm not going to live any longer. What this is saying is that we've actually changed natures. Our nature has changed. And we're going to get ready to talk about this changing of natures, this identification with Christ. But before we go there, hold your finger here and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Yeah, this was a big day in my Christian walk when I finally understood this changing of natures. It's amazing. Now, I'm going to read out of the English Standard here because I don't like the uh, NIV in this particular verse. But it says uh, in verse 16, 516, 2 Corinthians 516, it says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, listen to this, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation, okay? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's come. You are brand new, brand new. And I I love that because it's not, you know, remember that verse where, you know, it says that unless a seed falls to the earth and dies, there will be no new life. And that was the kind of the biblical mentality that a seed, a seed was brand new life, even though it was generated by the previous plant, that the seed in the soil was brand new life. And that's how we have to see our life in Christ. That is brand new life. It's not warmed over old life. Okay. In other words, you're not trying to perfect your flesh. You're living according to a new life. Does that make sense? And it's important for us to see that because What do we try to do? We're so busy trying to, you know, tidy up the flesh, right? Make the flesh look better and sound better and act better. And the word is teaching, no, 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 no. It's new life. It's walking according to a new standard, right? Not trying to fix the old standard. Anyway, look in verse 3 of chapter 6, Romans. It says, or don't you know... That all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. That's kind of a curious way of saying something, right? And this begins this whole idea of our identification with Christ. Remember, it goes with the story of two men, right? And I'm 
part of the old, you know, part of me is the old story of Adam. But now we're talking about this new story of being identified with Christ and that I uh, that I was baptized into his death. In other words, when he died, I died. Okay, it goes on to explain in verse four. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Christ was, you know, he died, we died. He was buried, we were buried. He was raised, we were raised. Okay, verse five, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Isn't that great? And there is this thing going on here, by the way, which is called the prophetic perfect, which means that it's a done deal. That, you know, even though I haven't fully realized it, you know, my, my, you know, the resurrection is a done deal. The fact that I'm getting raised is a done deal. And so we're speaking here as if it's already been done. Right. Verse six, it says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that. We should no longer what be slaves to sin. I heard that in manifestations. I heard a lot of this in manifestations because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. That amazing. And that's a that's an important point. I'll elaborate on that a little bit, but. You know, in Romans 8, it says, we are no longer indebted to the flesh to serve the flesh. We have no obligations to the flesh. We have no obligations to our Adam side of the equation. I don't owe the flesh anything, right? It's been a clean break. This idea that when you die, you die to sin once, but you were raised, you were raised unto God, right? That in the Bible, spiritually, that death gets one crack at you, right? It got one crack at Jesus Christ, and and it failed. I mean, he died, didn't he? Yeah. He was completely dead. When people say, well, he died, but he went down. No, 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 no. He was absolutely dead for three days, three nights in every sense of the word. He ceased to live. And this is crucially important here because, you know, Satan, he's he's up there and he's, you know, rubbing his hands and saying, we did it. Got him. But then Jesus was raised from the dead and broke the hold that death has. You think about any other person who's ever died. I mean, you know, died their the last death. That death has a hold on them completely and utterly. That person isn't getting up from the grave and walking around. That person's dead, right? It's dead. He's dead. That's how it was with Jesus. He was dead, but then he was raised and death no longer has mastery over him. We'll read that. It says in verse 8, Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once, once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. Isn't that something? All right. Now, verse 11, important. Remember, Coming up here, we've been identified with Christ. He died, we died. He buried, and we, we were buried. He was raised, we were raised. Okay? Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves. So we just taught you this truth, that death had one crack at Jesus, and because he was raised from the dead, 
he was set free from the dom- dominion of death, right? Well, it says, in the same way, you yourselves. King James says, reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. How about that? Isn't that great? That we have a brand new nature. This isn't warmed over old nature. This is brand new nature. And just as death had one shot at Jesus, but failed, death had one shot at us. Spiritual death, but failed as well. In other words, when you're saved, you get eternal life. Now, there are Christians who will come along and say, oh, man, you know, grace, there's grace, but, you know, the whole grace, but thing. And then they'll say, but you can sin enough where you can lose your eternal life. No, it's nature. You've changed natures. You've been identified with Christ. You can't go back to the old nature. Death gets one crack at you. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead in sin and alive unto God. You have new life in Christ. Hold your finger here and go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. See, this is so crucially important. And uh, I just think uh, some of the false doctrines that have crept into the church is because people just aren't clear on these things. They don't understand the two, two natures. Right. The story of two men, the old man and the new man to them. They don't they don't get this whole thing. So Colossians chapter three, look in verse one, Colossians three. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. In God. How about that? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Isn't that beautiful? Christ, who is our life. He's raised. We're raised. He's seated at the right hand of God. We read in Ephesians. We're seated at the right hand of God. We are blessed with God's favor. Look in verse 12 of Romans 6. It says, Therefore, So knowing all this, knowing that we've just talked about that we've been identified with Christ, we've been completely redeemed, utterly saved, you know, nothing was left undone. Therefore, do not let sin reign. That means rule in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That makes sense, right? And why is that? Because it's contrary to our nature to sin, right? Certainly there is the obligation. God did all this for me. I want to walk out. I mean, that's huge. It's really big. But here, the argument isn't that. It is, look, you're behaving when you sin as a Christian, as somebody who's been saved, you are living contrary to your very nature. Does that make sense? It'd be like a dog meowing and a cat barking, right? It's contrary to your nature. So uh, verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. As instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. I like the King James better. To those who are alive from the dead and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace, under grace. And that was the thing about the law. Remember, you know, the law wasn't able to redeem. All the law could do was define sin and say, you're guilty, right? But we have been delivered that from that by grace. 
So just as we don't want to put ourselves back under sin, we don't want to put ourselves back under the law because they are contrary to the nature. Remember, we have these two natures and you have this old Adamic nature. It needed to be constrained by law, right? That's why we have the Old Testament. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, right? But the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is thou shalt get to work, right? Live by this new nature. Uh, verse 15, what shall, uh, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You get to choose your master. Isn't that great? You get to choose. You're going to be a slave one way or another, right? But you choose who you serve. People who say, well, you know, I'm, I'm my own man. Uh, that's what you like to think. You're not. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that Though you used to be slaves to sin, and that, you know, of course, you had no other option back then, right? You used to be slaves to sin. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your bodies in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Live your life out in service to Christ, your Lord. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in Death. How about that? That's just something. When I was a, you know, a baby Christian, you know, just a couple of months after I got saved, God pointed this verse out to me. He said in the King James, it says, what fruit have ye in those things that ye are now ashamed for the ends of those things is death? Because it was kind of funny at the time I was going through this, you know, you know, I, would, I really had a good time back then. You know, I don't know if I want to give that stuff up. And God's, you know, the Holy Spirit's trying to keep me moving. And the verse that God gave me, what, you know, what fruit did you have from those times? And then I heard this teaching, this one guy taught, and he said, uh, he re referred to this old poster from Alcoholics Anonymous, and it shows this bum, you know, lying in a gutter in his own vomit. And it says over the top, the good old days. <laughs> And, you know, that's the thing, you know, you start looking back and I catch myself doing it. You know, I had a good time in high school and I had some good friends in the Navy and I look back on it and I'm like, you know, I miss those times. And then I remember, well, you know, I'm looking at the past through rose colored glasses because I had a, a lot of miserable times, too. And it's a regret. You know, you look back and and yes, we've changed natures. I'm I'm called upon to live according to my new nature. It's a blessing. Look at verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to what? Holiness. So you remember we were talking earlier about, you know, you know, these things lead to character development. Well, this is the character development. You become holier as a person and the result is eternal life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love it. I love it. So we're going to finish up here. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2. 
This is, again, a, one of my favorite sections in the Bible. Verse 17, Galatians 2.17. It says, If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? No, absolutely not. Verse 18, But if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. Well, now, what does that mean? Well, the problem was is that the Galatians had these people that came into the church, and they were known as Judaizers, right? These were the people who came in and said, yeah, you know, Paul's been through here. He's been telling you guys about grace, and, and that's great. You know, grace is great, but you still have to get circumcised, and you still have to do the law, right? And Paul came through and said, no, you don't. So when it talks about rebuilding those things that you got rid of, what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about you rebuilding those old standards, those old standards that you've moved beyond. You are a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ. You live by a whole new set of rules. Does that make sense? It's a new day, right? All things are become new. Your nature has changed. So why would I want to put myself back under this old law or put myself back under sin you know, I wasn't raised Jewish. I was a Gentile. That was what I was raised. But, you know, I, I do have old standards. Those were the standards I was raised with. We all were raised with certain standards. So when you get set free and you move beyond those standards into the standards of Christ and you start developing this new character and uh, you're becoming Christ-like, and then Satan comes along. Yeah, that was a pretty good standard. And that was a pretty good standard. And that, and pretty soon you start taking on. And this is an important point here, because if you are not walking it out in Christ, you will reflexively start re-implementing these old standards. That's how it works. And that's where you get this oddity where you have Christians who are talking one thing and living an entirely different thing and not seeing the distinction between the two. And we're all guilty of it, aren't we? The idea here, though, is that we minimize this. We minimize it as much as possible. And, and we talked about that three or four weeks ago when we were talking about hypocrisy. And we said, let's get the thing on the table here. We're all hypocrites, but we want to minimize the hypocrisy. I want to walk and talk the same thing as much as possible. And as I become more and more mature in Christ, the two should start to converge, right? It ought to be the same thing. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. Now, listen to this. This is awesome. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that thrilling? Doesn't that thrill your soul? This is, again, our identification with Christ. Paul is saying that I died so that I may live, right? The I there has changed. The new I. Uh, my life is the Christ who lives in me. That's who I really am. If, you know, I, I think about in Romans 7 where Paul says, you know, he talks about the struggle that he has. You know, that which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not do, that I do. Right? And then he says, then I realize there's no more I that do it, but the sin that dwells in me or lives in me. Right? So he was not identifying with his sins. And in a personal sense. And how crippling is that to the Christian? That, you know, when you think of yourself, your self-concept, you think of yourself after your sin. I am this, you know, or I am that. 
Well, Satan's pretty much beat you. You're not identifying yourself with Christ. You're identifying yourself with your sin. Do you see how crippling that is? And that's what I said last time about when the devil comes along and accuses you of your sin. Wholeheartedly agree with him. Yet you're absolutely right. I did that. But thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ that he was crucified for me. Right. Let me read that over again. For though or for the through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I was thinking about this whole crucified. And there was this passage by this guy named A.W. Tozer. And you'll, you'll realize I'm a big Tozer fan. But anyway, he says he was talking about the cro- a cross. And he says he says a cross would have no truck with the world for Adam's proud flesh. It meant the end of the journey. It carried into effect the sentence imposed by the law of Sinai. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a human being. The man in Roman times who took up his cross and started down the road had already said goodbye to his friends. He was not coming back. He was going out to have it ended. The cross made no compromise modified nothing, spared nothing. It slew all the man completely and for good. It did not try to keep on good terms with its victim. It struck cruel and hard. And when it was finished and when it had finished its work, the man was no more. So you think about this change of natures. We have to recognize that just as Christ was crucified, died, and that was it. He was dead, and then he was raised from the dead. We need to see ourselves that way as well, that we shouldn't try to be playing this game of two natures, right? So I'm going to read that verse over, verse 19 again. uh, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now listen to this. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If I could achieve righteousness through my own ability or through my own merit, Christ died for nothing, and grace is useless. Uh, thank God he's, he did, and it isn't. <laughs> isn't that awesome? So let me uh, finish with a word of prayer. So Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for that. We're thankful, Father, that we have new life in Christ, completely new life in Christ. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can stand up and, and speak this word of grace to the nations. Uh, Father, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to him that believes. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for our eternal life that you have given us in Christ, that Christ is our life. And Father, we thank you for blessing this fellowship in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Nothing but grace, the only hope For these guilty hearts you have paid each debt I owe
Nothing but grace will lead me home. On that day I'll see I was never once alone. There I will see.